Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Brian Hopkins, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to talk about the new and, and albeit crazy technology revolution that's underway. Welcome, Brian. Uh, thanks a lot. So, Brian, let me start with a very simple question. Are we at the beginning stages of a new technology revolution? Absolutely. I've been covering emerging technology now since I've been at Forrester about six years. And what we saw is a, a really big upspike in interest in emerging technology around 2012 and 2013. A lot of inquiries, I did a lot of advisory on it, a lot of reports on it. And then that kind of tapered off around 14 and 15 as folks got used to these new technologies that we'd been talking about at the time, big data, um, advanced analytics, cloud, mobile, social, all these things. Well, around about 2013 and 2014, firms kind of understood what those were and were beginning to change and adapt how they do business to take advantage of these new ways to uh, engage customers, new ways to understand what customers want and, and, and respond to them. So we saw a dip. And now, starting in about 2016 and certainly in 2017, there's this whole renewed interest in a lot of newer emerging technologies that are building on the back of these previous technologies to enable even newer ways of doing business, newer ways of engaging customers. Right. So yeah. can you be specific? Like name some of these technologies that you're referring to. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the report that we that I published at yep. the end of the last year, the top emerging technologies to watch, we identified 15 of them. Mm-hmm. What was really interesting about that, because we looked at how these technologies were impacting business in terms of were they going to change industries? Were they going to provide significant competitive advantage or were mm-hmm. they really going to change the world? Yep. And, and when? And so out of that analysis, we didn't plan it this way, but exactly five technologies fell into that bucket How of <laughs> these technologies are going to change the world. And the other thing we, we saw when we looked at the timeline for these technologies is it's going to take three to five years before we really start to see the change the world impact. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you what they were. First off, everyone's really interested in artificial intelligence, yep. right? Saw that one coming a while back with things like deep learning and neural networks and uh, uh, natural language processing. Yep. So everyone's really interested in that. That's got a ways to go, though. It's still fairly basic today. Um, another uh, interesting one that, that we saw in 2016 in our research was IoT, right? So this is the Internet of Things. Internet of Things, right. Two of the top three most read reports mm-hmm. at Forrester last year were on the IoT, right? The year before that didn't see so much interest, and all of a sudden, everyone perked up. So uh, IoT software and solutions is the second one. Uh, another one that's kind of related to AI, but I categorize it differently, is um, intelligent agents. Yep. So things like on the consumer engagement side, chatbots, mm-hmm. um, things like Siri or, or Cortana or Alexa, right. um, but also on the back end, things like robotic process automation. Right? How do I use software robots on the back end of my company to really become very efficient in the way that I do business? It's the same kind of things, infusing those with intelligent agents. So this is the method of ensuring that I can engage these technologies as a human being in a very natural way versus I have to understand how the technology works to use them. Well, exactly. So I had this big debate internally with a couple of analysts about what we call these things, right? So the industry word is artificial intelligence. That's what everyone's buzzing around right now. We kind of wanted to use the word cognitive, even though there's another vendor that's capitalized on that word a lot. But we kind of decided to call it AI and cognitive because really what it's about is about creating technologies that engage with us as humans rather than us engaging with them as machines. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the first one there is, in, you know, you can show my age. The first one like that was a mouse. It was hilarious. I was in junior high school. And this I, is what's tied to the computer, not the rodent on the ground. Yeah, the mo- right. <laughs> I was in, literally, I was in junior high school when a friend of mine who worked for Apple, the plant in Dallas, came to me one day and he goes, Apple is working on something really cool. You're going to love it. You're going to want I said, what? He said, it's called a mouse. 
right? And at that time, no one had ever seen a mouse before, right? right? So if you can think of a artificial intelligence as the software equivalent of a mouse, it just lets us work with technology in ways that we are really comfortable with yep. and yep. as humans, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the way we think of it. So that's the fourth one. The fifth one is augmented and virtual reality. There's obviously a lot have been made about augment our virtual reality today. We see the, the yep. goggles and all the things that are happening. But when you really look down at it, the real revolution is going to be the augmented reality piece, mm. right? When we can begin to superimpose the digital world on top of the physical world, and not just from a consumer engagement per- perspective, but from an employee engagement perspective as well. Right. You know, we've got a ways to go before the headsets get small enough, the processing power gets big enough, the technology. But once that begins to happen, that's going to have a really kind of change the world effect and create a whole lot of new business opportunities. Right. But even in the virtual reality, we had an earlier podcast with James McQuivy where we talked about the role of virtual reality being so formidable in customer experiences and really driving sort of that recall reaction that's important for emotional engagement. So the idea you'd be on a trip and then virtual reality will allow you to replay that trip and replay those same experiences and emotions. And the purpose of that appears to be also a very strong play in the CX world. Yeah. And so think about that whole idea, but superimposed on top of augmented reality. So that replay can happen when you're having an immediate experience that triggers the replay. Mm, right. Right. I think that's even more exciting. Mm. So are there families of this? How should people get their head around these different technologies, uh, the different acronyms that exist? How, what, is there a structure <clears> for this? Yeah, there is. Um, the way that we, we position is there, from a customer engagement perspective or from an employee engagement perspective, there's really two things going on. We have systems of engagement technologies, which are those technologies which are all about having that personal uh, contextual conversation with your customers mm-hmm. or even between employees in a business. Yep. Right. So system engagement technologies. And then on the other side of that, we have system of insight technologies, which are about taking the the data that's produced in those those engagements, mining it for insight, which is really what do I do with this new knowledge that I have? And then that feeds back to systems of engagement. So the systems of engagement and systems of insight are always playing off one another. If I think of it from experience design, that interrelates a system of engagement and systems of insights because I'm using those insights to drive personalized experiences. That's the engagement and, I want to have with my customers. And then those personalized experiences create actions which can be measured. Yep. Specifically, you know, one of the things we talk about in the, in the research that I publish is what a digital insight is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think of, specifically marketers, think of digital is it's digital channels. It's right. the website. It's mobile. It's data about customers collected on digital channels. And I've kind of turned that on its head a little bit. When I think about digital, I think about how insight is applied. So an insight is digital when you can test and implement it in software. Mm. And whether that insight is something I've collected from your head because you know something that I can then codify and use in a system of engagement, or it's insight from analytics, as long as it's digital, I can test it and implement it in software. Once I've done that, I can go measure the outcome, which produces data, which is a rich source of new insights. Yeah. Right. And right. around and around. We call that a system of insight. Mm-hmm. Right. So one way to think of this is that this is a set of technologies that reside within the existing set of technologies. So within the within the auspices of the CIO or CTO. Another way to think of this is that this is, to your point, changing the world. So if you look at banks or retailers, it's a fair argument to say that they're no longer strictly banks or retailers. They're technology companies that happen to work in the banking and retailing environment. And we can take those lessons from the banks that are rapidly delivering digital experiences, and really they're being measured on the quality of those services. Or you can flip it and say, 
if you look at the Amazons or Facebooks or Alibabas of the world who have actually built digital platforms and can easily enter into those spaces and offer banking services, whether they're peer-to-peer lending or they're such, is the technologies you're referring to sort of just the same old sort of technology infrastructure or are we really talking about remaking companies with these types of technologies? I'm going to back up something you said at the beginning of that statement. When you think about businesses, I'm really classifying businesses that I, that I talk to and work with today. There's, there's two kinds, mm-hmm. really. There's businesses that, that make products or services and use technology to help sell or make those products and services. And on the other side of that coin, there's technology companies that happen to make or mm-hmm. software companies that happen to make products or services. Right. Right. And so that's really the difference between those seems to be the difference between the have and the have nots in the digital world. And the have is the second one. The have is the second one. It was like at Digital Forum last year in May, we had Domino Pizza Guy, the customer experience executive, get up and say, look, we're not a, a, a pizza company. We're a software company that sells pizza. Yep. And that attitude and the five years it took us to change our business around that attitude has made all the difference in the world for them. And I think that's the real difference here is how do you view yourself if you're a CEO or board or at the C-level, mm-hmm. you know, what is the role of software and technology in your business? If you're not a software business that makes and sells stuff and you're thinking to yourself the other way around, I think you're always going to be playing catch up to the, to the first type of company. So, so you're thinking, you're talking about like the stitch fixes of the world, the Ubers of the world who are technology businesses, but operating in retail or what have you. Well, yeah, exactly. And that kind of gets to the, um, uh, the interesting, um, Second part of the question you ask is, I've been asking myself a long time, what are these companies doing? You know, I wrote about Stitch Fix in a report, and and certainly we've mentioned a lot about Uber. I'm actually thinking of this uh, effect as the Uberization of business. And what I really mean is, even if you take a look at what Amazon did or what, what Facebook did, certainly what Uber or Netflix did, all they did is they built a technology platform that was able to monetize mismatches between supply and demand. I mean, it's really easy to see that in Uber. You got a bunch of black car drivers sitting around. You got a bunch of people needing rides but hating t- the taxi experience. Exactly. Let's, I mean, how many employees does Uber have? A handful. Yep. Right? How much is their valuation now? Billions. Mm. Right? Um, Amazon did the same thing, right? Hey, I want to buy a book. I don't want to go into Barnes and Noble. I can buy it online. But the thing they needed to do is provide online reviews. If I start reviewing, books online and letting people review their own books online, I can create a market for selling books and I can match demand for for books, good books and supply of good books with a technology platform. And it actually goes back from a technology standpoint to the recommendation engine. If I can actually create a buzz around a book based upon peer reviews of other people who read Mm it, I'm actually creating liquidity in the marketplace I just formed. Exactly. Exactly. So what we're seeing is these platform businesses are doing things like you say, to create the market into which they're selling and monetizing these transactions. Yep. And so they're, they're building these platforms, mm-hmm. right? And that's what I think when you think about applying a technology uh, to create an, a new kind of business, if you're not centering your business around that platform that is for sensing your market, sensing your customers, or sensing supply, seeing that mismatch in supply and demand, and then with great agility, being able to create the experiences right. that then deliver the, the demand for that, that thing, and then sell it and monetize that transaction. To me, that's the 21st century digital growth engine. There's not going to be a whole lot of more growth selling low-cost widgets in some part of the world. I mean, that game is kind of over. Walmart maxed out the supply chain. I mean, where the growth is is around these platforms. Right. So you just painted a world of which companies, the companies that haves, will be software companies that can go in and dominate their own markets through a technology posture and even go to adjacent markets rather quickly. 
the beginning of this, we talked about the new tech revolution, starts with most likely the CIO or CTO. And a, a credible argument would be that they're empowered. They're empowered to take these, these technologies and take these ideas and start reshaping the very destiny of companies. Is that true? Well, I think it hasn't been in the past. I mean, I've I come from a financial services background. Um, and even not too long ago, back six years ago, um, we had a CIO who, as soon as the new CEO came in, took the CIO who reported directly to him and moved him under the chief operations officer. Yep. Pretty strong statement of how down, this down new on C- the totem CIO, yeah. the CEO thought the role of technology. But one can argue that an insurance business is an information business. It should be a software business. But that's not the way they saw themselves, hmm. right? And I see we see a lot of that when I talk to, not as much as we used to, but a lot of CIOs and CTOs still, one of two things happen. They're either the, you know, the keep the lights on kind of person right. or they're the smart technology people where the CEO doesn't understand technology. And so I'm going to hire this smart CIO or CTO and I'm going to make technology their problem. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things you said is I think is very interesting is, is I think the days are disappearing in, into the rearview mirror where CEOs themselves don't have to deeply understand technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Stitch Fix as right. one of them. Yep. Another interesting disruptor I've worked with is this company called Earnest. They refinance student loans. I was going to say student loans. Student loans, yeah, yep. yeah. And the way that they do it is you do business with them and you give them all your social information and they're constantly monitoring every every social feed and every every bit of information you can give them. And in return, they say, you know, we, we don't use your FICO score. We can give you a better loan rate. And we can get in, out in front of issues you might have and refinance those loans for you so that you're not uh, having those problems. But it's a, it, literally they collect 100,000 data points per customer. Wow. So, Brian, that makes me a bit nervous because one way of thinking about this is that it's the exclusive domain of the Amazons, of the Ubers to actually innovate. But that leaves the traditional companies behind or not having that same opportunity set. Yet we're painting a picture where being a software company and having that competency and that capability is going to be table stakes soon, or maybe even now. Well, it's the innovator's dilemma playing out all over again, just like Professor Christensen wrote about, right? Companies who are successful enterprises have grown big because they laid a golden egg. Uh, they become very good at making money the way that they have, right? And a lot of those have been driving the stock price, working with the street doing the things that make them successful. Sort of but, shareholder value yeah, being the thing that matters most. Exactly. And yeah. they get really stuck in that way of working, in that way of thinking. And then along come these disruptors who create a product that is maybe not as great, but they have this new way of thinking and this new way of moving and this new new way of disrupting. Fast. And these other, yeah. these more successful businesses, because they've been successful, can't can't do that. Mm-hmm. So what we see today is a lot of companies kind of looking at this and understanding this and going, man, the investment that I need to make to change to be more like that, to be more like these disruptors, is it's scary. I mean, just for example, in the Internet of Things, uh, I'm doing a lot of research on that right now. And one of the things I'm finding is that companies have these great Internet of Things aspirations. But when they really look at what they need to do to be able to reach those aspirations and they look at the price tag, if they have the, the guts to, they go running in the other direction because it's a lot of change and it's very expensive and a lot of it's not like immediate 12-month ROI driven. 
So companies, these enterprises, our customers are facing this change and wondering, how am I going to make these investments when I also have to report out to the street quarterly numbers? And this is going to be awful for my stock price. Right. And I'm going to make this a bit more tangible because there's a real life example that is quite compelling, which is years ago in the the cell phone device company, you had very successful companies, Nokia, BlackBerry and others who saw themselves as device companies, hardware. You had these new guys in the streets that saw themselves as software companies. And at some point in time, there was a basic decision to be made, which am I? And the companies that were successful at the time made the strategic mistake of thinking of the market staying linear, staying the same. The other ones simply outflanked them and outran them, and they reshaped the market. And you, we know how that story ends. Are we in that same place where you actually have to think of the next market so differently with, with, with a threat of staying the same and not moving as being as dire as what has happened to the Nokias and Blackberries of the world? Yes, I think we're at that point times 10. Wow. Right. I mean, when you, when you look at the uh, things that are happening, I know James McQuivy, we had another podcast with him. I really like that guy. He wrote in a research report called People Will Really Do That. Yeah. Uh, Will People Really Do That, I think was the name of the report. He made a statement that I use a lot in, in my uh, emerging technology advisory, um, that the next 10 years are going to see 10 times more change than we saw in the previous 10 years. Right. And so he talks a lot about this idea of hyper adoption. Yep right, of how we as human beings are defining our success and becoming successful because we, we're we not afraid of change. Right. It used to be, you know, 100,000 years ago, if you changed, you had a good chance you were going to get eaten. Well, that's not true anymore. Now, if you change, you might actually find a behavior, find a technology, find something that allows you to be a lot more successful. So that's really changing the way our brains work. And so that hyper adoption is creating a pace of change in business where a lot of businesses come to me, a lot of uh, our clients come to me and go, Brian, now here's my five-year plan. What do you think about it? And I say, well, I'm glad you know what you're going to be doing in five years because I don't. Yeah. Right. And the only five-year plan is investing now so that in five years you can be doing something completely different well, than what you think of today. Well, it seems like what you're saying is core to the strategic premise is not that I can adapt to a marketplace, but I actually have to build those technology platforms now. Because if I'm a software company and the market's moving fast and changing fast, what I really need to do is have a technology environment that allows me to rapidly deploy new products, new experiences, new ways of working, and always sort of maintaining liquidity between supply and demand. That's, that's my strategic priority now. Is that a fair statement? It, it is. And I think you know, it really r- rotates around knowing who your customers are and, and how you serve them. And finding those adjacent opportunities to serve customers in different ways. Right. right. I mean, the way they look, you know, Facebook has built a lot of customers and they're very loyal following, right? And because they've built this customer base and a, a platform to be able to kind of exploit the knowledge they have of their customers, now they can move into new areas like uh, we were talking earlier, banking. Yeah. Right? Well, Facebook's not a bank, but they have the customers who now trust the platform and so, therefore, they can move that platform in new directions because the customers are willing to follow them there because they're doing things to create demand for these new services in the market that they've created with the customers. Right. And that's the whole part of why we think it's the age of the customer because it's not about how good I'm going to make a widget and convince everybody it's great. I'm going to develop a community of customers that are going to follow me. And as I exploit new adjacent opportunities, they're going to come along because they like the first thing I gave them and then they know they're going to like the second thing right. as well, too. So hyper-adoption is evil's brother is hyper-abandonment. Yes. And so <laughs> the idea would be is that money's not coming new to the marketplace. It's moving between provider A and provider B. Correct. 
So the minute I benefit from the adoption of something, someone is losing from the abandonment of something. Someone is right. losing share of wallet right, right, or right. a customer or whatever. So the idea is that I need to make sure that if I if I acquire those customers or I acquire those dollars, I need to continue to service them so that I don't fall victim to the idea that someone can easily exit back out. Well, it's really interesting you, you mentioned that. I wrote a report with Ted Shadler and James McCormick called The Insight Driven Business where we looked at that phenomenon. In mm-hmm. fact, we had we studied a bunch of companies that, that we thought were doing something different with, with data and insight. And we call these insight-driven businesses. Yep. And we wrote a whole report on what they were and how they were different. But the key thing we, we realized when we look at the finance, financial model of these companies is that today these insight-driven businesses, about 40 companies, a lot of the companies we've heard of, like Tesla and Amazon and Facebook and all these companies were in there, plus a lot of others and a whole bunch of startups we looked at the kind of money that they would have to make to justify their valuations or their growth projections in Morningstar over the next five years. And in 2016, these companies were making about $400 billion, but they were growing, public companies were growing at 27% combined annual growth rate. And the startups were growing at about 40% combined annual growth rate, right? Which means by 2020, they'll be making $1.2 trillion, which will be about 1% of GDP, now, it's an amazing movement of market share. It is, specifically when you think about the fact that the global growth, projected growth in 2020 is only going to be about 3.5%. Right. right. So where are that, where's that money going to come from? Yep. It's the gonna, people who didn't innovate. It's going to come from the – well, it's going to come from businesses that aren't insight-driven. Hmm. And so it's a little bit different. Yes, innovation is important. But when we talk about what it takes to continuously win and retain customers, right. the most important thing about that is, is how well do you know what your customers need now? Are your customers flocking to you or are they running away? Mm-hmm. And if so, how do you adapt to keep customers coming and keep them with you as you move into these adjacent markets, right? And that's really what it, what you know, customer insight and being insight-driven and customer-obsessed is really about, is having the technology and the processes and the people, we call them insight teams, to with great agility constantly be monitoring what your customers are leading you, go there, and, or go in a new direction and have your customers follow you. So it sounds like these enterprises should have Amazon envy, right? But really it's not, it's not about really wanting to do that. They need to do this and they need to do this now, right? Make this change, make these organizational changes, technology changes, what have you. Is that, is that fair? Well, I mean, there's really a shift in attitude, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not too long ago, let's say five, six, seven years ago, the attitude was, I'm going to make a bunch of big technology investments. Once I make those investments, I'll finally have the platform that I need to be fast and agile and all those things. I'm so, done. So, so mm-hmm. business, check up, check business, just trust me for a couple of years here. Just give me a lot of money and, and we'll get this done. And don't ask too much of me while I'm reworking this. The attitude now, and a lot of this is driven by technology, which is another interesting point. Uh, if I remember, I'll talk about in a minute. Um, is driven by technology such as uh, cloud, uh, container-based orchestration, yep. microservices, and those things, is how do you create a technology architecture that is not monolithic, that doesn't require two years of investment to change because it's based on a set of you know, loosely connected services that map up to business capabilities mm-hmm. so that the capabilities that don't change order to cash can be encapsulated in a service, and then you can use these services and reconnect them in different ways to innovate in these adjacent possibles. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of brings up the second point, which I thought to make just a minute ago, and that is we used to think in this kind of old legacy world that that I came from, most of us came from, is technology should follow the requirements. 
because we've all been in trouble before. We've, <laughs> we've got to the point where, oh, gee, isn't this technology great? Let me grab it and then realize that you had to spend a whole lot of time customizing it. So SAP was the perfect example, right? right? So we kind of developed this aversion to letting technology lead us. Technology should always follow along behind us like a dog and do the things that we want it to do. But I think in this new world we're talking about, it's the other way around. That we need to let the, we need to let the tail wag the dog a little bit, hmm. right? To mix metaphors, yeah. Um, we need to recognize that the best businesses are actually moving into the those adjacent possibles that technology has enabled for them, yeah. because they have the platforms and, and the ability to do that. Rather than making technology serve them, they're almost designing their businesses around what technology can let them do. Can do, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a shift. Yep. Adjacent possibles is a funny term because when you look at the players that we mentioned before, you mentioned Amazon, Jen, which is it's, it's, the, it's the adjacent execution capability. It's actually I'm not, it's not possible I can do that. I'm capable of doing that and I'm capable of doing that very quickly. It's not an opportunity. It's actually ability to fulfill it very rapidly. I mean that's the change I see, which is mm. we're away from the imagining it and now we're watching it unfold and all the threats to the P&L, the traditional companies, are playing out as we speak. I would say yes, but also think about the fact that the, the company that's best at doing this, Google, has a lot of moonshots that fail. Yeah. So it's this innovative attitude, which means that they can actually try stuff and not be afraid to fail at it. So that you have to come up with the idea, the possible, and then you have to be able to execute on it. Right. But you also have to be able to not get so committed to execution that when things don't work, if you shut it down, it's a success. It's the fail fast, learn fast. Well, we've been saying that for yeah. years, but I still see uh, a lot of customers and folks that I work with having real, tr- real trouble with it. So, Brian, we started this conversation with the new technology revolution. And as this conversation has unfolded, we then sort of evolved ourselves to a new architectural revolution, this idea of a technology platform. And then we sort of talked about the idea that what we're really talking about is a business revolution, the idea that I need to operate the business fundamentally different at a different pace, being able to be capable of very different things, whether it's adjacent possibles or be able to execute against those adjacencies. Then you mentioned the word mindset. You said, well, people actually have to think differently. They have to start their thinking of technology taking the lead position. This is a pretty far-reaching ship. This is not just, is an AI interesting? This is more reshaping the nature of industries and markets. Um, Absolutely. When you think about some of the things that emerging technology is enabling, right, self-driving cars, it's interesting to think about self-driving cars. But you also got to think about all the other industries that are impacted by cars that can drive themselves. Or, or just – I'm not sorry to interrupt you, but no. the idea – because we talked about Amazon, but the idea that Apple is going to be a car maker and the idea that the car is not an automotive platform but a media and information platform at this point in time. Well, I think, it, again, playing off this idea that is it possible in the future that we won't buy our cars? Right. Cars will be given to us as platforms for monetizing the services that we want, right? If that blows your mind – it think does. about it. think but think about it, it does. right so we're moving into this world where technology is fundamentally changing society in ways that you know we really can't comprehend right now so how how are you going to be successful as a business um, doing that well it's not the top down catering to wall street way of running business by by general accounting principles that's going to do that it's it's thinking about the future a future in which well not only is business going to be very differently a lot of industries are being disrupted we're going to have massive shifts in where people live because of global warming. Resource shortages such as uh, oil shortage, water shortage will, will really redefine what's valuable. And we're really at, at the precipice of seeing this you know, pretty massive change. Yep. And how are you going to be a successful enterprise 
that has to be able to adapt to be able to see and adapt to this world. very quickly. Right. In that world, right? Yeah. And the only thing I know for sure is I don't know how it's going to turn out. Right. <laughs> I, I'm going to return back. You, you said something earlier on and the idea that the technologies that are underway, I'll use – again, I'll use AI as the example, which is the CEO may say, well, that's this thing over there. What you're really saying is the CEO, in fact, the whole leadership team needs not to be technology competent, not even technology fluent, but they need to master technology to compete in the, in the world that we're, we're evolving to very quickly. Well, absolutely, and that's, that's back to the whole in, innovator's dilemma. The, yeah. the, the innovators, the real disruptors that I see have founders or CEOs become CEOs who, right, they aren't just, they don't, they're not fluent in the technology. They understand the technology and have built their business around the technology in a way that's very hard for people who didn't grow up in that to do. Right. So the challenge for today's enterprises, right, is to have leadership that are willing, so they're so comfortable with the technology like AI, that they can bet the future direction of a certain part of their business on it because they, they understand it, they get it, they know what it can do. Right. That's that's a very different mindset. So a, a test for the board is, do I have a CEO that can master technology? And a test for a CEO is, do I have a CIO and CTO who can lead the business and make it go forward from a business technology standpoint? I think that's a fair statement. Brian, the name of this podcast is what it means. And we've talked about a lot of different meaning of things. We've talked about technology, not simply accelerating the opportunities for companies, but reshaping society and reshaping the very nature of companies so if I'm a board member, I'm a CEO, I'm a leadership, what's my big takeaway from this? What, what does it mean to me? Well, you know, Victor, we've talked a lot about futuristic stuff. And a lot of that stuff is going to take five or more years to actually show up in our laps. So when we think about today, I think at a board level, you need to, companies need to realize that their future growth potential is in making markets more efficient. That is matching supply and demand. So the most important thing you can do today is take a look at the, the heart of strategic change in your business, where you think you need to change in a business, where you're investing in that change. Take a look at those programs and projects that, that you're investing in and recognize that what those need to point at is this platform, people, process, and technology, organizational and technology, so that you can sense these mismatches and where your business already has expertise in an area where you can monetize driving efficiency through matching supply and demand. You need to start building those platforms so that you can move into those those areas very quickly. That's what's going to drive growth. That's what's going to keep your stock price up. That's where all the big companies that we're talking about, that's what they've done. And that's what we think our clients need to do. Brian, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, freewheeling, we covered a whole yeah. lot of turf here. Thank you so much for your well, time thank you. Today. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks thank a lot. You. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thanks for listening. Check out the show notes for links and relevant content on today's discussion. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn.